the Police Federation official podcast. Hello and welcome to the Police Federation official podcast, or Fedcast. This is your opportunity as members to put questions and issues to the national chairman and a variety of guests. So over the coming months, uh, some robust discussions, some straightforward answers. 2019, of course, as we've said before, does mark the 100 years since the Police Federation began. And there's lots of issues and topics to talk about, which, of course, the Federation wants to share with you the membership, pensions, pay, campaigns and conduct will all be on the agenda over the coming months. I should also remind you, of course, you can send in questions anytime via Twitter or email. We'll include as many as we can on future episodes on this programme. Of course, as you would expect, John Apter is the National Chair for the Police Federation. Hello to you, John. Hello, Ian. How Good are to you? see you. And we're also joined by Simon Kempton, who is the Operational Policing Lead of the Hi, Federation. Ian. Hi, Simon. Good to see you both. Um, where are we going to begin, John? There's lots to talked to since the last episode yeah i mean there's there's never a time when police issues are off the table but there's been particularly in the last month or so it's been an incredibly busy time absolutely certainly the 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 violent crime the epidemic that we've seen and you know sadly predicted um has really grabbed the headlines because more and more senseless killings are going on on our streets and the government has had a backlash from the public mm. and they've had to do something about it. They've had to react. And, um, and you know, we've been at the forefront of putting our message forward. And it's not all about, you know, having a pop at the Prime Minister saying, well, we told you so. It's also about looking for solutions. And I've met with the Home Secretary and, you know, put across uh, what I believe our members would want me to put across, that they're, um, this was predicted, um, but they want to be part of the solution. But throwing money at overtime isn't a solution. They're already working excessive hours. There's got to be a a long-term solution to this. Um, And it's not only about knife crime and violent crime, as important as that is. And, you know, we've had the Chancellor saying, well, we should just prioritise, which is not only an insult, but it just shows how out of touch that Mm. he is. Uh, And our colleagues, you know, those dedicated men and women are doing the absolute best they can for the public. And in some cases, uh, you know, I'll be honest, it's not good enough because... We just don't have the resources. So this £100 million, or, well, £80 million in real money, £20 million has got to come from the Home Office budget somewhere. Home Secretary assures me it's not coming from policing. Time will tell. Um, but this is new, genuine money. And I've spoke to a few chiefs around the country. It's going to be targeted towards um, setting up violent crime reaction teams. But those officers, you know, we haven't got extra officers. They'll have to come from somewhere. Mm. And it literally is just papering over the cracks. But... I'm not going to say to the Home Secretary, no, we don't want this money. Of course not. But what I have offered is a constructive debate about where we go forward. Is it ultimately boots on the ground? Yeah, well, I think that's part of it. And and I'm the first to say, yes, it is boots on the ground because we're not sustaining policing as we should be. But I think to combat the epidemic in crime, it's far broader. It's not only policing. It's about the probation service. It's about the youth community groups. It's about the prison service. It's about all of the other public sector bodies who've been through immense financial pain. um, And we've all got to work better together. Um, So policing is an important part of it, but it's only one part. I think John's absolutely spot on. And it actually goes even wider than that. I think the men and women who police our streets, my mates, my colleagues... What they're telling me as well is there's a lack of support, certainly from politicians who for far too long have used policing as a political football. And it started with our Prime Minister, our current Prime Minister, when she was a Home Secretary, who demonised the use of stop and search. And we know that stop and search, when used properly, is a really important tool in curtailing knife crime and other sorts of crime. 
And my colleagues felt unsupported from the highest levels when she was Home, home uh, Secretary. Fortunately, now with the current Home Secretary, what we see is someone who seems to get policing. And he's been quite supportive in his use or his, his support for the use of stop and search. I'd like to see more of that. It, it, it must be disconcerting when, I mean, we can go back over Theresa May's speeches at police federation conferences and crying wolves and all sorts of other um, unfortunate moments that she had. And then, of course, the stop and search issue. And then just recently saying, well, no correlation between numbers and the, the kind of things that are going on in the streets. And you sort of, you must think, how many people, Prime Minister, have to tell you that this is what is happening and this is in part the solution. Yeah, absolutely. But what, what does it take? If, if you guys and hundreds of officers at a federation conference and various other agencies and even people like myself, journalistic perspective, are shouting the same thing to these people, you think, what does it take well, to I, change the mindset? I'll tell you what, Ian, with this Prime Minister, um, there will be nothing that will change your mind. The issue with this Prime Minister, Ian, is that no matter what people say to her, she will never accept that she's got things wrong. And the reality is that the government austerity programme has failed. And um, th th this Prime Minister, and I know she's got a lot on her plate at the moment, but, you know, the safety of the public should be a government's priority. And th this Prime Minister has failed uh, to listen to reasoned argument, to reasoned debate, not only from those who deliver policing, uh, but from the public, from the media, from her own colleagues. Um, there are other politicians other than the Prime Minister who are listening, they are engaging with us, they do understand and recognise uh, the importance of policing, and they celebrate uh, how brilliant policing is. No matter what pain we've been through, we are fantastic at what we do. Um, and my colleagues do need that support from, as, as Kenny says, that my, my colleagues do need that support from politicians. And it's almost like, you know, you talk to some politicians, it's almost like they, they are a bit embarrassed to be supportive of policing. Well, they shouldn't be. They should celebrate it and ignore what the Prime Minister says. It's interesting because when we've done phone-ins on this and you get kids who are part of gangs who come on anonymously and talk about you know, why they're in gangs and reasons behind it. That one of the things that they all seem to say is that over the course of the last few years, just gradually and gradually, there is a sense of there's no police out there anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not a case of, yeah, oh, look, there's no cop around the corner, so I'm about to go and do something horrendous with this knife. It's not as direct as that. It's that sense that, you know, it's going to take a God knows how long to get a police car down here. So we can do this, and we gradually have found out that, or sense, as gang members, that, well, that, that the police aren't around. You're absolutely right. And what we know is that criminals will become emboldened. And they all talk to each other. When's the last time you saw a copper? Not for a while. And you become emboldened. And we know that Theresa May says it's not about um, the numbers of officers. She would say it's how you use them. But John's absolutely right. Boots on the ground is a huge part of it. She's got a police officer on her doorstep 24-7, and nobody's ever burgled number 10 and nicked her telly <laughs> while she was out at the theatre. What does that tell me? It tells me there's a deterrent effect to having a visible police presence on the streets. But most of us don't get that. Most of us have to wait far too long to see a police officer yeah. because of the austerity cuts. Let, let's move on to another area then, because this all, all kind of sits in as well. You've talked a lot, John, about Taser. Yeah. Um, and, and again, that's another area where you'd think it'd be pretty straightforward. The police are asking for the, the right to use uh, taser or more officers having the, 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 the right to use them if they want to. Um, but you, you have in the past come up against a lot of walls on that one as well. Yeah. But there has been some there's been some progress. here. Yeah, there's been lots of progress. And, um, 
I, I think there's two things that have been introduced into policing in recent years which have fundamentally changed uh, for the better policing. One is body-worn video and the use of it, and the other is taser because without doubt it has saved my colleagues' lives and prevented the use of lethal force. My biggest gripe, uh, first of all, chief officers originally didn't want to roll out taser because they thought the public wouldn't support it. And then when the public did start showing the support, it then became an issue of finance. And, you know, we have a postcode lottery across England and Wales. The sum, some will have it, some have done full rollouts to all of those who want it, others haven't. Uh, some forces, very few now, don't have body-worn video. Um, and I've been, I've been pushing the Home Secretary to say that the, the funding of essential equipment like Taser must be led by government. They should centrally fund it to take away that burden from chief officers because all of my colleagues deserve to have the protection of this piece of equipment. It's, you know, it's not the ultimate. It won't save everybody from every situation. Um, but time's moved on. And, and I think when the public see that body-worn video image of officers tackling people who are intent on causing mayhem on our streets and using taser, I very seldom hear criticism from the public because we want to keep people safe. And over 70% of the public, I think, agree with this as well. They, they want to see this. And as you say, coupled with body-worn cameras, then there's a that, that would satisfy, one would assume, most people who have got a question mark over it. Absolutely. I've got the privilege of leading for us on body-worn video. I'm a huge supporter of it. We've already got the most accountable, most transparent police service in the world, and this only heightens that. It only builds the trust. So the majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of the public see that we're highly professional, highly responsible, and that use of taser keeps them safer. Now, when I'm doing my job, when I go out on, on the streets, and, and when John does as well, nothing keeps us safer like having enough colleagues. But in the absence of that, taser's not the panacea, but it keeps me safer and it keeps you safer. And, and also it's worth saying, for anybody listening to this who's not quite sure how data is collated, when they say over 300,000 taser incidents... Let's just put some meat on the bones of that. That doesn't mean that officers no. have fired a taser 300,000 times. Correct. You take your taser out of the holster, you've used it. You put the red dot on somebody, you've used it. You tell somebody, if you're not careful, I'm going to taser you, you've used it. And the amount of times that my colleagues actually pull that trigger, it's like 11 or 12% of uses actually involve that trigger being pulled. Yeah, yeah over, out of 313,000 uh, incidents, just 2,000. Uh, of that huge number were where the the taser was actually used. Uh, absolutely. And also, Ian, I think it's worth pointing out that um, some of our critical friends, let's be generous, um, who uh, insisted that we had body-worn video because we were all corrupt and we weren't doing our jobs properly, and they insisted that we had a less lethal um, option available to us, they have been um, campaigning relentlessly for us to have this equipment. We then have it, and what happens? The body-worn video, actually, rather than demonstrating to some of our critical friends that we're all corrupt, um, it actually demonstrates that the level of violence that my colleagues have to put up with on a daily basis, it shows um, how professional they are, it shows the uh, malicious complaints that they're subject to, and the taser has demonstrated, as I've said time and time again, that it saves lives and it protects them. And I'm not saying that we always get it right. We, clearly we don't. Police officers are human beings, they're not robots. But body-worn video gives a level of transparency that we've never had before. Our use of body-worn video is expanding where we're able to use it in different circumstances. It must be welcomed by everybody. And our critics have gone very silent now of the benefits it brings. Taser again. I want to see every officer who wants it to be issued a taser because it does save lives. It makes them feel safer. 
and it makes the public safer. And you said something crucial there. For any, any Federation members listening to this, they probably know this, but just to clear it up, you're not talking about making it compulsory for officers. This is about a choice, isn't it? If you want to carry a taser, you should have the, the, the right to do that. Absolutely, and that goes across departments as, as well. And some people, some of my colleagues, simply don't want to, and they're supported in that as well. We absolutely support them. But the vast majority of my colleagues want that reassurance that they can protect themselves, protect their colleagues and the public, mm. and they should be given that, that measure of protection. And, and didn't Nick heard that the police minister make an announcement, certainly about student officers and, and tasers, just earlier this year? Absolutely, and we've been pushing. A student officer does exactly the same job as, as any other officer. It's just that they haven't yet got to their two-year service. But they've gone through the same rigorous training, had to meet the same standards. And if they can meet the standards required to carry a taser, then of course they should be. Because when you dial 999, it's just as likely in these days that it will be a student officer who's attending your call. Uh, let's move on to uh, spit and bite. We hear a lot about spit guards, mm. bite guards as well. I mean, just, just to explain what's going on here then, John, because, again, you know, I, I, I've certainly hosted debates where this has become contentious. Yep. Certain politicians don't quite understand but, you know, the whole point of a, a spit guard. In fact, you know, some even thought it was the police officer that, yeah. that, that had to wear them, mentioning no names, of course. Uh, but certainly it's, it's back on the agenda. Yeah, it's uh, and this, again, is something which is um, really important to us. And it's been the police federation that have been at the front and centre of this debate and pushing for this equipment to be issued to our members. Uh, so a spit and bite guard is a, it's a, a hood which goes over an individual's head. It's, uh, you can see through it, it's like a mesh and there's different types of design but it prevents you spitting um, uh, or biting uh, an individual. Now before having this equipment, the only options were to accept it, which some of our critical friends would say that's what we should do, or have a nice conversation to talk ourselves out of it. Reality doesn't always lend itself to that being a, a potential outcome. Um, or we use excess force um, to, uh, to prevent the individual spitting. And you know, and, and again, Kenny, let me explain, Kenny, Simon, we all call him Kenny. There's not another person in the room. So it's a long so, story. It's, yeah, it's interchangeable. Yeah, there is, I, don't, I, I don't know the story. No, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but but Kenny, Kenny leads on this as well for us. And it's, it's something that I feel very passionate about. I will always defend um, its use and its rollout. And I, you know, all bar about three forces now have given this full rollout. And to those forces who haven't, you know, they say that they want the evidence. The evidence is there. Far too many of our officers are being spat at or, or bitten. And, you know, there, there is a potential legal avenue that we could um, uh, pursue. And I know some chiefs, it's been suggested that if they don't do the right thing, then we would look at legal action. I will never shy away from doing the right thing for the right reason. And in that, if that's taking legal action against the chief constable, then we will. And in fact, the Federation have funded claims on behalf of officers where they've um, been subjected. I mean, it's utterly vile assault. Because that's what it is. I speak from the point of view of someone who's had somebody else's blood in my mouth because they've spat it at me, which makes it fairly emotive for me, but that's where the passion comes from. And we need to remember as well, the people who listen to this who aren't police officers, this doesn't just protect police, it protects members of the public who perhaps step in to help us. So a security guard at Sainsbury's or Tesco or whatever, it'll stop them being assaulted in this way. And it's dead simple. If you don't want to wear a spit guard, don't spit at the police officer. Where, where is this argument lost then? Organisations like Liberty, they're, they're a human rights organisation. They said that they thought spit guards were dangerous, degrading and unjustified and have no place in the future of policing. And what I say to Liberty is, first of all, what is the alternative? 
Um, you, you tell us what the alternative is. And, and I agree, you know, spit guards are not designed for comfort. They're not a fashion accessory. But as Kenny says, if you don't want to wear one, don't spit at officers. Uh, and the reality is that for some of these individuals, they will chew the inside of their mouth to create blood and saliva and use it as a weapon. So I, I've offered for Liberty to come on a training session uh, with me to see how officers are trained. And it is about proportionality. Is It is about making sure that the individuals having it applied is looked after and cared for as best as they can be. But the reality is as well, some of these individuals are extremely violent. And if we weren't to use a spit guard, what else would we use? So um, I look, I get Liberty have got, um, uh, they've got a an argument to raise and I understand that they're speaking on behalf of those people they think they should be supporting but they don't live in the real world and they don't have an alternative. And does this have to be uh, okay by chief constables? Is that the way this works? Absolutely correct. Uh, chief constables have got autonomy within their own okay. areas to run. And I've, I've spoken to several chief constables. I've gone around the country to present around the, the safety, the evidence. We've, we've got doctor's reports. We've commissioned doctor's reports that show that there's no reduction in the amount of oxygen that you can get into your blood when you wear them. So the, the body of evidence is there. I think it comes down to perception mm. and a lack of understanding of how the equipment's used and what the equipment is. If you look at the training course, the majority of the training course is about aftercare and making sure people yeah. are safe. It's not about how to put it on. And I was looking at some of the stats just in the Met, for example. So that's just one one police. Okay, it's the biggest, but it's just one. And two two thousand two hundred thirty one police officers have been spat up while on duty in the past two years. Five hundred and sixty two were bitten. We know that uh, Commissioner Cressida Dick recently gave the go ahead. I think I'm right in saying that there should be officers should be allowed to carry spit and um, and, and bite guards if the, if they want to. Yeah, and just on those numbers as well. There's a huge underreporting. And I'm as guilty as this as any other police officer. If someone spits at me and it lands on my my uh, body armour and my fleece, I'm unlikely, wrongly, to report that as an assault. It's when it gets me in my face or a colleague's face. So the actual numbers are far higher than that. I can't stress enough the importance that this kit brings. I mean, officers have contacted me and said um, that it's uh, it's been a lifesaver. It's prevented them from, and that's not being overdramatic, because what it has done, it's prevented them from, go, from going through months of waiting for results from tests when they, or should they get blood spat in their mouth. Um, It's a horrible, horrible, vile thing to happen. It's a really important point that John raises there. So the Police Federation are at the front of a piece of work to look at giving officers, and it will go wider than police, the public sector, Mm. um, proper education, first of all, about what are the risks of, say, bloodborne virus, because a lot of the anxiety comes from that unknown and also what's really important is if we're pushing with the support of the Home Office, because we won the argument with the Home Office, to get the inspector at HMIC to test forces on the occupational health and the psychological support that they offer to officers. And where it's failing, we'll push really hard on that. And what does that now take? Is that just a case of continuing to hammer this message home? Because I think if members of the public are listening to this, and some will be, they would be surprised that there would be any controversy around this area that it wouldn't just be pretty much standard there's your uniform there's your boots and there's this bit of equipment as well which will protect you from being bitten or spat at but i think sadly we have this every time there's a new piece of equipment i can remember so i'm a 41 now so sort of 30 years or so ago when we start to see the end of tunics and these utility belts and there was uproar you look too much like batman and and then people got used to it and then we had the same thing with body armor people won't approach you but that wasn't true either. And when people worry about the perception, 
What they don't do enough is talk to the public. They talk to their own little focus groups like Liberty. Mm. And Liberty have got their place. Liberty have got a job to do. But they don't talk to your average man and woman, girl and boy in the street. Yeah, I, I, I'm with organisations like Liberty. I, I don't mind having a sensible, a reasonable, constructive conversation with people about the rights and wrongs of whether it's Spitgard or Taser. Liberty have got themselves into a place at the moment where they're not rational in some of the comments that they're putting out, which is why I'm really keen to meet them. Because, I, you know, I don't hide away in an office and say, let's throw hand grenades at each other. I really want to understand where they're coming from. But they've got to say to me, what is the alternative? Look, they, 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 they fought against body-worn cameras. They fought against Taser. They compare everything we do to America, and we use spit guards and Taser in a very, very different way. Um, let's just have a sensible grown-up conversation. That's all I ask of them. Just a final issue we should look at, and Kenny, you can probably answer this best, mutual aid, a lot of, lot of pressure on police officers and services. Um, more reliance, we're hearing, on mutual aid. Explain more about what's happening and where the concerns are. Yeah, far more than ever. So for the non-police officers listening to this, mutual aid is where a cop from one part of the country goes to another part of the country to fill in a gap because there's a, a, a need that wasn't foreseen, perhaps. Or sometimes it is foreseen. So we've seen over the last 12 months mutual aid used in huge numbers. Uh, the incident in Salisbury, the Trump visit, Commonwealth heads of state. And one of the key parts that the, the Federation has to play in, is protecting our members, our colleagues, our mates' um, conditions, make sure they're treated properly and make sure that they're able to claim the allowances that they're entitled to. So, for example, one of the, the key things that we're looking at at the moment is what's called the overnight allowance. So if you have to go away from your family, away from your, your, your kids to work in another part of the country, we believe it should open up entitlement to the overnight allowance. So at the moment, the rules to that are a little bit difficult to follow for some. It seems like it should be obvious. You're away from home, therefore you get your allowance. It's not that simple. There's different things that we have to go through. So with our National Secretary, Alex Duncan, he and I are looking at putting a paper to the chiefs and asking them to, to address this issue so that everybody who leaves their family behind to go and work somewhere else is able to access this payment. Now, having said that, the Federation's had a load of successes in negotiating on behalf of our members. So if you look at Salisbury, we were able to successfully negotiate all officers who went there to deal with what is actually an act of war, let's not forget were able to access this payment. Similarly, for the Trump visit last year, we were able to successfully negotiate that all my colleagues who went to that because of the heightened threat and, and this and that, they were able to access. But we shouldn't have these negotiations. We shouldn't have to fight for it every time that mutual aid is used. It should be a given because we're asking our colleagues to do that much more than they would normally do. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. That is it for this particular episode. A reminder that if you have a question you want to put to John on the next programme, make sure you follow the Police Federation on Twitter. And, of course, you can also email via the website as well. It's also important that if you listen regularly, you hit the subscribe button so that each episode will come automatically and tell everyone you know exactly where we are as well. Until the next one, goodbye. Goodbye.